Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Before I begin, I wanted to thank you guys for your generosity towards myself and to the other staff. Um, I know I'm speaking for myself, but I also know I'm speaking for the rest of the staff that we feel very privileged to be able to serve you as a, as a church family on both of our campuses. And I just want to tell you how much we love you guys. So just wanted you to know that. Well, we are continuing in our study of 1 Samuel this morning. On After this week, we have two weeks, and we will be done with 1 Samuel. Um, then we're going to go into a Christmas series. That Christmas series is called Good News of a Great Joy, and we'll be rotating pastors through the pulpit for that series. I'll be preaching up here, Pastor Jordan will be preaching here, and Pastor Chris will be preaching here. Then as we get into the uh, new year, we're going to do a small series called uh, What Does It Look Like to Be Spiritually Healthy? And I know what many of us think, oh, spiritually healthy, that means somebody who wins a Bible trivia contest. Uh, Not necessarily. There's a big difference in the Bible between having Bible information and actually having heart and life transformation. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's not a long series, but I think it'll be something good to help us understand what being spiritually healthy is. Then after that, we'll come back to 2 Samuel. So you guys are wondering if we're going to go there. Yes, we are. Uh, Sometime at the, probably somewhere in February as we'll begin to go to that. So take your outlines out, and I'll begin with some background for our study this morning. If you remember where we left off last week in 1 Samuel 27, David was really at the end of his rope. For years, he had constantly been chased by Saul, pursued by Saul, and Saul was trying to take his life. Finally, David was at his wit's end. He said, I can't handle this anymore. He did the unthinkable. He went and tried to go into hiding among the enemy. He went to the side of the Philistines. And while it was restful for him in the sense that no longer was Saul hunting him, it wasn't a restful time. David was having to play the role of a double agent. In one side of his life, he's working for Achish, king of Gath, but the other side of his life, he's trying to um, promote the interests of his Israelite people and brethren at home. And it was a, a difficult time because to play a double agent, he had to constantly lie, constantly deceive, and he murdered anyone who would seek to um, reveal his true motives and who he actually was. So his character took a big hit. Now, Agish, king of Gath, actually was well duped by David. And when Agish, king of Gath, began to prepare to go to war against the Israelites, he called up David and said, David, you come, you're going to fight with me. And David now found himself in a pickle that it didn't look like there's any way to get out of. He had been enlisted in the Philistine army to fight against his own people. How would he escape? Where would his rescue come from? Well, the chapter ended by leaving us on a cliffhanger. We won't get to that answer until next week. But this week, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we find that David is not the only one who's in a pickle. Saul, King Saul, is in a pickle as well. And it's because of the Philistines who are coming to attack him. Now, we know that this was a common occurrence because we see in 1 Samuel, back in chapter 14, verse 52, 
It says there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. So there was constant tension between the Philistines and, and Saul. But this was different. In the past, David had been on Saul's side. David had been his most victorious warrior, destroying the Philistines. But now David was on the opposite side. David would be fighting for the Philistines. And this made Saul afraid. In fact, as we look through this chapter, the one common theme we find in this chapter is fear. Saul is filled with fear at this point. Now, he's been a man who's given to fear through all of his life. But here it's at a crescendo moment at the end of his life. And I, as I thought about how to divide this chapter up into some kind of order that we would be able to hang our thoughts around, this topic of fear came to mind. And thought I'd divide it under this question. What leads to a life filled with fear? Let's look at what Saul, let's see what filled Saul with fear so we can learn what can fill us with fear. And then ultimately at the end, what's the rescue to of being a person dominated by fear? The first thing we see as we begin is this. A life without God is filled with fear. Begins in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. This is actually a bit of review. We had learned about Samuel's death in chapter 25 of, of this book. Uh, but why would it mention it again? Well, typically, when a, a king of Israel would go to war, he would want to receive some kind of guidance from God, some kind of direction from God, and a blessing from God. But since chapter 15, when Samuel and Saul had parted ways, after Saul's sin by failing to destroy the Amalekites, pretty much God's been silent for Saul. He's been living life on his own. And here, at this crucial battle against the Philistines, in a battle that is much more serious than anything that Saul has faced before, his prophet, Samuel, is dead. The other thing we need to know at the beginning, as we're orientated to this, are these words. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. In Saul's better days, in his younger days, he had removed these two um, kind of people from the land of Israel. You say, well, what is a, what is a medium? A medium is somebody who tries to contact the spirit world to get information on how people should live in the living world. Now, what is a necromancer? A necromancer is somebody who tries to contact dead people to get information on how they should be living as living people. So somebody's trying to contact spirits, and other people are trying to contact the dead. And Saul had, in his earlier days, driven these kind of people out of the land. And you wonder, well, why had he done that? Because in the earlier days, uh, he had learned very clearly what the Lord had said about following his word. Back in chapter 12, we read this. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, not rebel against the command of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
So Saul, trying to help things go well, has put out of the land these kind of people who divine the dead, who divine spirits, who try to read omens, who are involved in sorcery. And the Old Testament, by the way, is explicit that these kind of people are not to be among God's people. We read this in Leviticus chapter 19. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then in chapter 20, verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. You want to get God angry? Get involved in the occult. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They will be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So anybody who is trying to contact the spirit world, anybody who is one of these dream catchers, who's trying to use the crystals for energy and all this kind of psychic work, in Israel, they were completely wiped out. At least they should be. That's what God's word said. That's a quick way to clean up the neighborhood, isn't it? Then we read this in Deuteronomy 18. It's even more explicit. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. I want to focus on the very last part. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Who's the them? The them are the people who inhabited the promised land before the Israelites arrived there. Remember how Joshua was to wipe them out completely? And sometimes we sit there and say, oh, how could God be so nasty? Well, the truth is the people who were in the promised land were regularly and consistently involved in occult practices, involved in demonology, involved in contacting the dead, And after a while, God was like, enough is enough. We are going to put a stop to this. And I'm going to use my people to do this. In addition, God wants them wiped out so their practices do not become part of the life of his people. So this is very clear on this. Now, let me just pause for a moment and just bring some quick application to this. And it's simply this. Demonic or occult activities should not be part of our life. Now, some of you may say, well, really, demonic and occult? That's not around here. Some of you have been to Haiti? Witch doctors? Voodoo? Any of you have been to England? Familiar with the Druids? Familiar with casting spells? Any of you have been to Arnold's Park? Palm readers, horoscopes, tarot cards. Oh yeah, this stuff is not just in our time, it is in our very neighborhood. And the scriptures are clear, it should not be part of the life of God's people. 
one of the things that's actually rather popular with young ladies today is something called Wicca. You ever heard of that? Wicca is called Witchcraft 101. And it's enchanting or it's enticing for young ladies because you can put a curse on the, the girl you don't like so things go wrong in her world. And you can put a, a, like a charm on a boy you do like so he's drawn to you. And this becomes rather entertaining for young ladies. But folks, the scriptures are clear. None of this should be part of the life of God's people. And in case you think it's not real, in case you think it's not out there, I've talked to people who are, know about Wicca involvement in Spencer, right where are their campuses. 2015, um, a Wicca witch actually opened the prayer for the Iowa House, if you know that. A 90-second satanic prayer she offered. Because, you're, you know, as a religious order, they're allowed to do that and get in the line to be able to pray. So that's a Wicca witch in our time. Which then brings us to sort of another practical application. It's this. I think, think carefully about the right way to celebrate Halloween in your family. Now our culture has this thing called Halloween and I will mention that I grew up on the East Coast. In the East Coast, Halloween was much darker than it is here in the Midwest. Um, and we have to reckon, like, how do we as Christians, for a, a holiday that typically deals with ghosts and goblins and witches, how do we celebrate that? As a youth pastor years ago, I was actually a youth pastor for 10 years before I became a lead pastor. Um, I remember I got an invitation from a church in the community where I was serving, said, come to the haunted church event. And, you know, witches and cauldrons and, you know, had the, the, the pot on the front of it and all this kind of stuff. And I just paused and I looked at it and I scratched my head and, and I wrote to that youth pastor. I said, hey, we won't be coming. I appreciate your desire to reach the community. I appreciate your desire to have people, you know, in the church. But given what the scripture says about demons and the occult, having a haunted church event doesn't seem like the right way to go about doing that. Now, what would be the right way? How about for us as a church? I know some people have uh, said, well, what we do is we don't celebrate Halloween. We don't have anything to do with Halloween. In fact, we keep our kids locked in the basement until Thanksgiving rolls around. That's probably not the right way to handle it. That's extracting from the culture and having zero influence upon lost people. Then there's other people who say, well, we just go along with it. We put the skulls, we put the crossbones all over our front door, and we just celebrate Halloween. That's also seeming to be wrong. Here at Crossman's, we're all about trying to reach people with Jesus, which means we try to develop relationships with people who need to hear about Jesus so we can share Jesus. So, I mean, in the fall, there's nothing wrong with doing something like a harvest party, right? You know, have a harvest party. People are looking to have some celebration at that time. Have some celebration, but in a positive way, and build relationships with people so you can tell them about Jesus. I think the good part about Halloween in our culture is that sometimes we forget to talk to our children that the demonic world is real. It's powerful. 
It is dark, and the, we should have nothing to do with it. And when Halloween rolls around, it's an opportunity for us to teach our kids how to handle the holiday and to tell them about the good news of Jesus as opposed to that holiday. I think that's very important for us to do. Now, let's get back to the text. It says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Let me show you how this works on a map. Um, as you can see where the Sea of Galilee is. Shunem is in the north. Mount Gilboa is just a little bit to the south. It's a small area there. And go to the next slide if you could, Amber. Thank you. This is a zoom-in area. Um, you can see that there's a valley between them. And what is interesting is this valley sort of divides the nation of Israel between north and south. This was a different technique to attack Israel that the Philistines were using. They had moved much further north. They were trying to cut the country in half because typically Saul would receive reinforcements from the north, but this would cut Saul off from the north. In addition, this valley... Uh, was a really strategic advantage for the, Canaan, for the Philistines, who, as we saw, used iron chariots. The Israelites did not have iron chariots. The third thing that we can tell is that this was a trade route. So by dominating this valley, um, the Philistines would cut Saul off from his logistical supply. Saul realized that this was not an attack like it happened before. This was much more serious and much more threatening, not to mention the fact that David was now fighting on their side, or at least Saul thought that. And that's why the next verse we read says this. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. See this theme of fear coming right out again? Where it says his heart trembled greatly. The way Hebrew works, sometimes they'll reserve certain key phrases or certain key words just for certain key events. The Hebrew words for trembled greatly, someone's heart, are not found any place else in 1 Samuel except for one spot. It describes what Eli did when he heard the ark was taken captive by the Philistines. And Eli realized that his dynasty and his reign was being brought to an end by God. What do you think Saul is beginning to realize when his heart trembles? That God is bringing things in his life to a rapid end. Then when we read in verse six, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Orem or by the prophets. Since Saul realizes he's in such a pickle, he is desperately now calling out to God. He's been ignoring God for the last, what, 13 chapters, but now when things are rough, he's starting to call out and getting no answers. He's getting no answers from dreams, which we know in Scripture, sometimes God would give rulers dreams to reveal directions. Remember when Pharaoh had a dream and Joseph interpreted it for him? The Urim, if you've been with us, you remember that the Urim and the Thummim were two rocks that were in a high priest's um, ephod, which is his 
essentially priestly dress. It was, in, it was in the chest plate and that the priest could throw those rocks down and the way those rocks landed would reveal God's will and you could ask God questions that way. But who killed all the priests? Who shot himself in the foot? Saul. And the one priest who survived, a man named Abiathar, had taken the Urim and the Thummim with the ephod and escaped to David. David had the ability to contact God through the priest, but Saul no longer had that. And God had not brought a new prophet since Samuel died. So it's like there's no way to contact God, and he realizes he's in a real pickle. Um, now, there's a question. It seems like Saul is turning to God, but God is not listening to him. It seems like Saul wants to be saved by God, but God is not saving him. Why not? No, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I understand what's going on. The Bible says this in Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Incidentally, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 as well. And you find in the other parts of Scripture that kings, very wicked kings, who have found themselves in a pickle, have called on God and been saved by God. As an example, King Manasseh and King Ahab were saved from their enemies when they called on God's name for rescue. But why is Saul not being saved? And here's what I think is going on. I wrote this down in your bullet for you. Saul went through the mechanics of repenting without genuinely repenting. He wanted to be saved from destruction on the battlefield, but there was no change in the orientation of his heart. <coughs> you ever met people like that? That when life falls apart, they call out to God wanting God to save them, but as soon as they're saved, they go right back to living the way they were because the heart actually never wanted to change. Years ago, I had a counseling situation that uh, just came to mind when I, was, when I was writing the message. A guy came into my office, and he was in a panic, literally in tears. Uh, the woman he was living with, which is his long-term girlfriend, this guy I don't think was a, a Christian, uh, she wanted to leave him. He said, please help me. I, I want to save this relationship. I'll do anything to make it work. And so I had counseling time with him, counseling time with her, counseling time with them. And it simply boiled down to this. You know, at night, he liked to drink. And he drank a lot. And he would start to become abusive towards her and nasty towards her, and hurtful towards her. She did no longer feel safe in the house. And I told him, I said, you've got a choice to make. You either have to choose the woman you're living with or the bottle you're drinking with. Which one do you want? Which one do you think he chose? The bottle. So all the tears at the beginning, I'll, I'll do anything to save this, it was sort of a front. He wanted to be saved from the relationship ending, but he actually never truly wanted to repent and change in his heart. I think this is a little bit what's going on with Saul. He's filled with fear. He wants to do anything to get out of the impending judgment that's coming his way, but it doesn't seem like there's much of a change in his heart. And I think this is an important lesson for us. When we look at our lives, 
And when we turn to God, we want to make sure we turn to God with our heart, not just externally. Now, we've seen that um, separation from God leads to fear. The next thing we learn as we continue is dabbling in the demonic leads to fear. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. The demonic people that he had so meticulously wiped out in the beginning of his career were the people he is now turning to at the end of his career. Uh, Isaiah says this about God's people. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Simply the idea that God's people would ever turn to a medium or anyone in the occult or astrology or a horoscope for guidance and direction about the future is completely absurd, is what the scriptures tell us. And his servant said to him, Oh, behold, there is a medium at Endor. I read that and I paused and I thought, why is there still a witch in his kingdom? And why do his servants instantly and completely know about the location of that witch and sort of recommend that witch to him? Now, I'm reading between the lines a bit on this one, but um, it sort of seems to me that his assistants knew about that witch and they knew where to find that witch because they seem to have been quite familiar with that particular witch. Had they visited her? Had they sought advice from her? Maybe. You know, the, the thing that comes to mind is apparently this witch had been recommended to Saul. Why would all of a sudden he turn to her in his moment of desperation if he hadn't heard of her and been recommended to, recommended, um, him to her. Now, I, I'm just thinking about this. Apparently, somehow, this witch is known of, and this witch is recommended. And the people that Saul has kept around him apparently are not the best kind of people. And there's a little application here. Be careful about associating with people that are dabbling in the occult. In my day, uh, Ouija boards were big. You guys ever heard of Ouija boards? And they are called channeling devices. And devices so the spirit world can contact the physical world. And I can still remember very clearly when I was in junior high English class and I had a rather eccentric professor who sometimes would go off on these tangents. He decided to go off on a tangent to start telling us how at a party the night before he had been using a, a Ouija board and he couldn't understand how the Ouija board would spell out these answers to him and how it knew information about him. And he was just really like sort of questioning it. And I'm like, oh, I could tell you. I didn't raise my hand, but I felt like I learned it in youth group. <laughs> you know, not a good idea. But that English professor, the reason he tried a Ouija board is because he hung out with friends who used a Ouija board. So in an evening at a party, he played on a Ouija board. 
when our kids were growing up, we told our children about Ouija boards and the danger of them and not wanting to be connected with them in any way. It's a connection to the demonic. Didn't have this happen with David, didn't have this happen with Daniel, but it did happen with Deanna. We got a call late one night. She was at a friend's house for a party and a girl had brought a Ouija board. And late at night, when they're all sort of having fun and they're all tired and their guards are down, you know, the board comes out and, come on, let's play together. And thankfully, my daughter said, I don't want anything to be part of it. Called her mom and said, pick me up, I'm going home. But I say this just to make you aware of the fact that these things are real, these things are out there, and as Christians, they should not be part of our life at all. Let's get back to the text. Well, the witch was located, we saw, in Endor. Now, the problem with this is this is very close to the Philistines. I'll show you on the map. Endor is just over here to the side of Shunem, where the Philistines are located at. So this is a high-risk mission. Uh, for the fun of it, you want to see what Endor looks like today? That's what Endor looks like. It's essentially where that tree is in that mound. It's a very, very small town. Then we read, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and the two men with him. If you saw my sermon preview video and I told you that Saul puts on a disguise and goes to visit the witch, here it is, trick or treat. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? You guys look like soldiers, like the anti-witchcraft police. Why are you asking me to do this? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I read that and I paused and I looked like a dog that heard a whistle. Saul, you are swearing to her in the Lord's name that no punishment will come to her for conjuring up somebody and acting as a witch. Like, what are you thinking? How could you try and reinforce that with God's name? That's pretty illogical, Saul. This is completely against God's will. But then I thought, isn't that often the way it works, folks? The farther people wander from God, the more illogical their views become about life and God. Anybody notice that? This is why he's saying these illogical things. He's going pretty far. Then the woman said, well, whom shall I bring up for you? <laughs> Who do you think he's going to ask for? And he said, bring up Samuel to me. The prophet who used to give him directions before the wars. Now, the text does not tell us exactly how she runs her seance or what she does in her seance, but it does tell us this, that when she conducts her seance, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. In other words, the person who was most surprised in the room that Samuel actually showed up was her. This brings up a question we often hear when we look at this text. Did this woman have the ability to bring people up from the dead? 
the text doesn't tell us that she had this ability. It just tells us that Samuel showed up and she was the most shocked of anyone that he actually did. What I think happens here is God sent Samuel up from the dead. This woman did not call Samuel up from the dead. By the way, we should recognize that God can bring people back to life. And when people die, when everyone dies, whether you realize it or not, they still are alive. One day, Jesus will return and the dead will raise and will be given our resurrection bodies. But until then, everyone who has lived is still alive. This is evidence of that. And if you think this is the only evidence, it's not. Remember Jesus' transfiguration? Who showed up at his transfiguration? Matthew 17. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And I thought, you know, Samuel, Moses, and Elijah, all appearing after death are evidence of life after death. So if you wonder, do you have life after death? There's three guys. This is evidence that it's true. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? Wait, you're Saul. This is what you call a wardrobe malfunction, a disguise fault. Maybe his fake mustache fell off at this point. Somehow she, at this point, she recognizes him. The king said to her, oh, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Well, that's not very helpful. So he tries again. Well, he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. If you've followed us earlier in this series, you know Samuel had a robe, even from being a boy. It was a sign of his priestly garment. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Incidentally, this is the first time we see Saul ever bowing in front of anybody. So we've seen what fills a life with fear is a life without God. What fills a life with fear? Being involved in the demonic. And then we also see that sin here fills a life with fear. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? By the way, Saul may be interested in the seance. Samuel doesn't sound like he's too excited to be there. So this is not going to go well. Saul answered, well, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. God has turned away from me, and he answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. That's why you're here. Give me my directions, because God's not giving me them. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Your issues with God, I can't solve that. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. The reason that God's silence is a consequence of your sin. Interestingly, the sin that 
Samuel refers to happened in 1 Samuel 15. And here in 1 Samuel 28, he's paying the consequence of that sin. What a reminder that suffering comes with sin, but not all suffering comes immediately after sin. Sometimes it's delayed. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. As I read that, one line came to mind. When I sin, other people will suffer. Saul sinned, and his sons will suffer. They will die. The nation of Israel and many of the soldiers will suffer, and they will die. The Bible calls this, or theologically it's called the term federal headship. The idea that there's a head over people and that that head makes decisions and then the people live with the consequences either for good or for ill. Now, we're very familiar with the issue of federal headship. It's called our elections. It's called our government. And those that are in government make choices. And we live with the consequences of those choices, either for good or for ill, which is why elections matter. It's why the quality of leadership matters, not just in our government, but in our church. Because if you have poor leaders in a church, the entire congregation suffers in the church. You have good leaders in the church, the entire congregation is blessed. This is the same thing at a home. You have good parents, the kids benefit. You have bad parents, the kids suffer. And in this case, because of Saul's sin, even his godly son, Jonathan, will die the next day. Now, let's go to verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length to the ground, filled with fear, that's that theme once again, because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing at all, all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand. And I've listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. Aw, oh, this is nice. The witch is going to make him a little midnight snack. But he refused and said, I will not eat. Well, you know, that's going to change. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. He arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Before an execution, people are allowed to eat what's called their final meal. This is Saul's final meal. Where does it take place? At the table of a witch. Boy, has he gone far from God. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it 
and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Well, she said she was going to give just a morsel. Well, she didn't give a morsel. She gave a meal fit for a king to a man who was not fit to be king at this point. So Saul's final meal is at a witch's table. And then we read, Then they arose and went away that night. Well, I've given a number of applications as we've worked through the text, but here at the end I want to give a a couple of applications that come from the overarching view of the text. The first one is this. Disobedience can cut off communication with God. Isn't that true? That's what Saul did. He disobeyed God. He refused to genuinely repent and turn to God, and communication was cut off from God. We see this in Scripture. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Practically, if there's an issue of sin in your life this morning, that the Holy Spirit is right here and right now putting his finger on your heart about, don't be like Saul and stubbornly refuse to repent. Today, turn to God, repent, call out to God, and genuinely ask him to change your heart and head in the other direction. And the relationship with God and communication with God will flow and begin again. Second thing to point out from the overarching flow of the text, little compromises often lead to bigger ones. Back in 1 Samuel 15, the little compromise that Saul made was he refused to kill the animals of the Amalekites and refused to kill the king of the Amalekites. Just a little compromise directly disobeying God. Where did it lead? To a huge compromise, seeking direction from a witch at the end of his life. What a reminder that if we, if we choose little compromises in rebellion against God, it sets us up for big ones. And finally is this. When we turn to Jesus, we do not need to be afraid of the future. The theme that constantly comes up in Saul's life in this chapter is he is terrified. He is afraid. He is afraid of the Philistines. He is afraid of the future. He's afraid what's going to happen to him. Folks, you and I do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid of the future. We do not need to be afraid of the end of our life. We do not even need to be afraid of anything that happens to us while we are in our life. Because God loves you. Jesus has died for you. And when you have asked Jesus to pay for your sins, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing, neither height nor depth, nor things present nor things to come, can separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. Folks, Saul had a lot to fear at the end of his life. But we do not have anything to fear because of Jesus Christ in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I I thank you that while Saul was living filled with fear, we do not need to be that way. Some of us need to be reminded of that fact. 
Because as we go about our lives and the stress of our days and the challenges economically that we face and the challenges in life that we face, sometimes we find ourselves in the grip of fear. And we forget that we are held by you, that we are loved by you, we are watched over by you, and we have nothing of which to be afraid. So I ask that you would help us today to fix our eyes on Jesus, that incredible love you have for us, Jesus, the fact that we are more blessed in the universe than anything else, and we deserve none of it. Thank you for that, Heavenly Father, for what you've done for us through your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.